You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I blame Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, I don't, not really, but I do, kinda. Miranda hosted Saturday Night Live on October 8th, 2016, a month before the 2016 election. He does a rap about hosting SNL to the tune of Not Throwing Away My Shot from Hamilton as his opening monologue, and he walks off the set and the cameras follow him backstage and he's killing it. It is an amazing performance. Look it up uh, on YouTube if you haven't seen it. And pay particular attention, about halfway through, Miranda turns down a hallway at 30 Rock and there's this line of framed photos of recent SNL hosts, Miley Cyrus, Amy Schumer, Tracy Morgan, and then Donald Trump. And that's when it happened. That's when Lin-Manuel Miranda jinxed us. And yes, I'm right in my element. Who knew that Hamilton would be so topically relevant? The way these grandstanding candidates be talking. They're just a tweet away from facing off and we hawking. They keep brawling, DNR and C keep falling. I like it better when it's Kate McKinnon v. Baldwin. Yeah, and so we thicken the plot, stirring the pot. Tonight I'm finally earning my spot on this wall and this hall. And I'm getting a piece of it like Miley Schumer, Tracy Morgan and this piece of Never going to be what now, was it? In fairness to Miranda, who I do not actually blame for the election of Donald J. Trump, we all thought Trump was going to lose the night Miranda hosted SNL because the Access Hollywood tape had been made public the day before. I think we're all familiar enough with the Access Hollywood tape that we don't need to play a clip, do we? No? Good. After the Access Hollywood tape came out, Republicans were then, at that time, talking about dropping Donald Trump from the GOP ticket because a man who had been accused of sexual assault by more than a dozen women at that point and who had been caught on tape admitting to sexually assaulting women in exactly the way more than a dozen women at that point had accused him of sexually assaulting them – That man couldn't possibly win a presidential election, right? Because evangelical Christians, to take just one very important GOP voting bloc, evangelical Christians, so concerned as they are with the sanctity of marriage, evangelical Christians, a voting bloc that had been wary of Trump until he was endorsed in the primary by Jerry Falwell Jr., noted defender of the sacred sanctity of traditional marriage, evangelical Christians were sure to abandon Trump now in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape. No, of course not. The one-man-one-woman-for-life crowd, the crowd that demanded the impeachment of a president for getting a blowjob from a woman who wasn't his wife, they were going to stay home on Election Day, and Hillary Clinton was going to be the 45th president of the United States. We all thought so, not just Miranda. It's what all the polls showed heading into the election in 2016. 538 gave Clinton a 71% chance of winning, The New York Times gave her an 85% chance of winning. Reuters gave her a 90% chance of winning. Something called the Princeton Election Consortium gave Clinton a 99% chance of winning the election. Even Trump thought Trump was going to lose. I thought Trump was going to lose. It wasn't just Miranda. I 
jinxed us too. I don't know why the love cast comes out on Tuesday mornings. I think Nancy, who's been the show's producer since the very first episode, which was recorded on wax cylinders and delivered to people's homes by street urchins. I think it was Nancy who picked Tuesdays because why not Tuesday? It's a fine day of the week. But coming out on Tuesdays has meant that I record intros for shows on election days, which are on Tuesdays, like Election Day 2016, like Election Day Today. I record these intros before we know who won. And last time, I was so sure Hillary was going to win that I said so at the top of the show in my intro on Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. Let's go to the tape. I am confident that Trump is going to lose. I am confident because the American people are not the GOP base, thank God, and vice versa, thank fucking God. So if I'm going to blame Miranda, I also have to blame me. I, I heard from so many listeners who didn't get to hear that week's Lovecast until after the results of the election came in, who didn't listen until Wednesday or Thursday, until after it was official and Clinton had lost. I heard from so many listeners who heard that, who heard what I had to say and were just gutted or re-gutted by how optimistic I sounded, how optimistic I was. So yeah, I'm just as guilty, every bit as guilty of jinxing things as Lin-Manuel Miranda was. And I'm not going to make that mistake again. Since no one knows what today will bring or the next few weeks or months will bring, I'm not going to make any predictions or risk allowing myself looking at the polls right now on my computer to feel optimistic. This podcast, this time, this year, this election is a jinx-free zone. But I will say that I am just as nervous as you are and that whatever happens today, I want to thank you. Thank you for listening and subscribing and calling and commenting and tweeting and engaging with us. The last four years have been incredibly hard for all sorts of reasons. And getting to do this show, getting to talk to you and talk with you, listeners and guests, has helped me get through these difficult four years. And whatever happens today, whatever happens over the next couple of weeks, couple of months, the next four years, hopefully we'll be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast and we will get through it together. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and author Adam Sass joins us. He's a YA author, he writes young adult lit, and he's here to talk about his new novel, Surrender Your Sons, which has been described as a queer conversion therapy thriller. All that coming up on today's show. This is our quarantine sex story. My husband and I have been together for 43 years. We're seniors living in a condo in a retirement community in Florida. And the isolation of life during the pandemic has been stressful. And for the last seven months, we've been home together virtually all of the time. One of the most important things that keeps us healthy and happy is our sexual relationship. Every Friday night, we have a sex date. But the fun starts days before with flirtations and suggestions of what we might do. Come Friday, we're all excited all day long, knowing what will happen later. We have refined how we set up the bedroom with special lighting and even the way we prepare the bed. And medical cannabis has definitely enhanced our experience, too. 
we have a good ice bong, we call our sex bong, that we grab on the way to the bedroom. We've also refined our choice of cannabis and have now settled on the perfect smoke that intensifies our physical sensitivity and our mental focus. We like a lot of sex talk, too, and weed-enhanced sex helps us create our own little utopian world of pleasure, of alternating saying and doing, of talk and action. It's a world we hope others can create for themselves, too. And I think that our regular sex is the glue of our relationship and has gotten us through some arguments and tough weeks during this pandemic. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for sharing. We like to start each week's show with somebody's sex success story, quarantine-related or not. Before we get to the trouble, before we get to the problems, before we get to the conflicts, we love having a success story. So if you have a great sex success story you want to share, give us a call, 206-302-2064. Share yours, and we might open next week's show with it. Straight Girl here. I was with a group of friends recently, and the topic of anal came up. Majority of my straight girlfriends were like, ew, anal, absolutely not. Or they said it's for a special occasion only, while the majority of the gay guys in the group were like, yeah, anal's pretty great. Which leads me to think that maybe the reason my girlfriends are put off by it is that your typical straight guy just wants to ram it in and not do any prep work, well, more gay men will take it a little slow. What's your thought on this? And do you think it's more common for women to be put off by anal simply because of how straight men treat it or not really liking it? You know, I think that Occam's razor, sometimes the obvious answer is the correct answer. A woman has a vagina or most women have vaginas. Most vagina havers are women. And so anal, which can require more lead time, more prep and lubricant, can seem like a bigger chore and with that well-lubricated, if the woman is aroused, vagina there at the front of her body, uh, closer to her clit than her asshole is to her clit, it can seem like extra credit, like your friends say, like a special occasion thing, like a treat for him and not something for her. Now, there are some women who really enjoy anal sex and some women who have never tried it and have an ew, yuck reaction when it comes up. The first time they try it, particularly if they have a great partner, they have a partner who's good at it, who does the prep work that most gay men do without having to be prompted, she may discover that she loves anal sex. For some women, being penetrated anally, you know, there's the psychological turn on, but there's also often a physical turn on or physiological turn on because so much clitoral tissue is embedded deep within a woman's body and some women find that getting railed from behind kind of hits a bunch of those clitoral tissues, clitoral shafts, clitoral wings that weren't being hit because of the angle of their clitoral tissue and their particular body by PIV, by penetrative vaginal intercourse. Really works for some women. Some women that didn't think it would work for them really works for them. It does help to the first time you have anal sex or every time you have anal sex to have it with somebody who is going to take it slow and open you up and who understands and some straight guys' expectations around anal are shaped by porn where a lot of the foreplay and prep work is edited out or shaped by expectations of what vaginal intercourse is like. If all the penetrative sex a guy's ever had has been vaginal, well, it's easier, not always, but usually easier to slide a dick into a vagina 
an aroused, lubricated vagina than to slide a dick into an asshole. It takes more time to open up an asshole. And gay guys are likelier to put in the effort because most gay guys who are fucking asses have asses that have also been fucked and they understand. And a lot of straight guys who like to fuck, who like to fuck pussy, like to fuck ass, who like to fuck throat have never had their throats or their asses fucked. And so they don't get it, particularly if all they've seen is porn or all their experiences with penetrative sex have been vaginal intercourse prior to experimenting with anal, they may have really fucked up expectations about how it should go or what might be required of them. But if you have a large friend circle and there's a lot of gay guys in your friend circle and you're thinking about doing anal with your boyfriend, couldn't hurt to send them out to have a couple of drinks with your gay friends about how to do anal foreplay which often includes in Gayland a lot of analingus, a lot of rimming, a lot of eating ass. Something about having your ass licked really helps you relax, really gets your ass ready for some dude to slide his dick up in it. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old non-binary trans person in a very lovely, stable relationship of five years that has just started to be open. So even though it's really hard to kind of try to date people in the time of Corona, like I'm doing it. And for the most part, I'm having a good time, but I just keep running into this problem, which is my social anxiety. So last night I went on a date with this girl. She's older than me. She's also in like a stable open relationship. She had a really stressful day yesterday and we went to hang out and have a hangout makeout, which is something we do because we both test negative regularly. And I think she just wanted like a nice hangout makeout and we spoke to joint and I got way too high and I got so socially anxious and I just needed constant, constant reassurance. Even when I'm not high, I kind of need constant reassurance for my social anxiety. And like, this is such an issue, not just with her, but with other people in my life in general. And I just, I don't know what to do about this social anxiety and my constant need for reassurance. I'm so embarrassed about last night. I'm just so embarrassed about last night. I like just want to crawl under my bed and never come out. Help. You're so self-conscious about your constant need for reassurance that you're calling me and asking me to offer you some reassurance about your constant need for reassurance and to reassure you that things didn't go as badly last night with the woman that you're dating as you think they did. And I'm pretty sure they didn't go that badly. But backing up to the social anxiety and the constant need for reassurance, you should speak to a therapist. You should speak to a psychologist. If you really do have crippling social anxiety, there are meds that may help you. Some of those meds have side effects including libido tanking side effects. Maybe you've contemplated the meds or already used the meds and decided to go off the meds. Uh, because the side effects were too great and I support that if you went off them. All that means is there's this thing you know about yourself. Sometimes you require a little too much reassurance from the people you interact with socially or sexually and that can be a burden to them. And you just need to put that out there on the table. You just need to say to someone, I have this tick. Like I, I constantly apologize to people. I'm always saying I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then people tell me to stop saying I'm sorry and my response is, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm saying so I'm sorry so much. And then it becomes a little bit of a joke and you can do that. You can say, yeah, I have this thing. I you know, have this social anxiety. Sometimes I ask for reassurance 
too much and then it can become something that exists in brackets and italicized a bit where you can ask for the person you're with to be the reassurance Pez dispenser and kick out one of those candies to make you feel a little better while also acknowledging then or having acknowledged then that that can be taxing, that that can be a bit much, that that can get on someone else's nerves just like my apologizing constantly. But I don't think that what happened with this woman last night is the issue that you think it is or that you should be as mortified as you seem to be or require as much reassurance from me as I'm just giving you. You smoked a joint. You got a little too high when you smoked that joint. That happens to a lot. That happens all the time to people. That happens to people who don't need constant reassurance. Sometimes you get a little too high and it derails the evening and you become self-conscious or paranoid. You start acting weird and then it's time to turn on Emily in Paris or some garbage on Netflix and take the focus off you and just point it at the television set. Call this woman that you had this date with and just tell her, don't, don't apologize. This is the thing that happens. Say, oh God, I got – or you can't apologize. If it were me, I would say I would start with I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got a little too high last night and it kind of ruined the evening and I was uh, a big weirdo. Next time, I'll take one puff instead of two or have one edible instead of four. Lesson learned. And then stop worrying about it. And if you can't stop worrying about it, get some help. Find somebody to talk with about it. Find a professional who can help you with your social anxiety. Hi, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 21-year-old bisexual woman, and I had a question regarding fetishes and religion. I've been in a happy sexual and emotional relationship with my boyfriend for about three years now, and he's Christian I'm agnostic. I'm mostly Buddhist, Wicca, Judaism, uh, like around that realm. And my boyfriend has been really good about being accepting. He's accepting to a fault. He just sort of has that mentality of, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I don't really care. And it's like, eh, I don't know, just like maybe don't talk about it around my parents and my family. But yeah, and when it comes to our sex life, I'm usually the one who brings up uh, fetishes and just like any sexual adventures to the bedroom that I want to try out. And I don't really mind that. Every once in a while, he'll come up with like a sexy little tidbit that he wants to try out. <laughs> but it's usually something kind of small like me just wearing knee socks or something like that. And recently, to my surprise, he finally came forth about a fetish that he had, which I was super excited about. And it turned out that he wanted me to dress up as a sexy witch and kind of role play it and everything and put a spell on him and every and all that. But <laughs> I was I was really excited at first and everything. But then I just kind of thought about it and just thought about the aspect of him fetishizing what I believe in and maybe not taking it seriously. But I'm not sure if I'm looking into it too much and I'm just overanalyzing the situation. So this is where your advice would definitely help me out. I would love to try this out without having the anxiety of just feeling like he's downgrading what I believe in. And if he's not, I would love to put on a cute little witch hat and jump on his broomstick. 
you've already established that your boyfriend respects you and respects your belief that you telling him your that you practice the, the Wiccan faith uh, or that you identify as slightly witchy or a witch may have awakened in him this interest and you've wanted him to to get more kinky and get more adventurous in witchy archetypes in you know witches in our shared cultural imagination in halloween witches it might have put it into his head but so long as you can have a conversation with him where it's clear that that archetype and who you are and what wicca means to you and and your practice of wiccan faith are, are very different i don't see why you couldn't Enjoy this. You aren't dressing up as a, a Wiccan priestess. You're dressing up as this kind of Halloweeny, pop culture the witches with Bette Midler idea of what a witch is. And so long as that distinction is clear and he's able to make it and he's not insulting you, and even if, you know, on some level he was fetishizing your faith, imagine if. You know, you were a nun and he wanted you to dress up as a sexy nun. A nun can't be confused with a sexy nun. but And nuns, of course, Catholic nuns, shouldn't be having sex with anyone. But let's just, you know, flight of fancy. The church has done away in a thousand years with celibacy as a requirement, not just for the priesthood but for nuns as well. And nuns have romantic partners. I think, you know, a sex-positive nun in that sex-positive future with a sex-positive Catholic church, which is really hard to imagine – would be able to make a distinction between a nun, the nun that she is and her faith, and that idea of a sexy nun, a fetish nun, a nun in a rubber habit as opposed to a nun in her regular uniform, whatever it might be a thousand years from now when the church drops the celibacy requirement for priests and nuns. This is a long and circuitous route to me saying, you want to do this, go ahead and fucking do it. Put on the little witch hat. It was just Halloween. Maybe you have one laying around and like you said, jump on that boy's broomstick. Hi, Dan Savage. I'm a 27-year-old cis woman who has a question for you about my sexuality on National Coming Out Day. I've never had a crush on a person. I've never seen a person and thought, oh my God, I want to fuck you or like, oh my gosh, you're really cute. I want to ask you out on a date or I hope you ask me out on a date or like had a celebrity crush or anything like that per se. So that makes me think maybe I'm asexual, but I love having sex. I have like a super positive sexual relationship with myself and I have sexual relationships with other people that I super like and like I get super turned on and I can't imagine my life without sex and like I would never, ever, ever, ever want to just, like, stop having sex. So that makes me think maybe I'm not asexual. But, yeah, I just don't feel like I'm really attracted to physical features of people. Like, like I've always felt like I was missing something when, like, friends and things will be like, oh, isn't this person hot? Isn't this person hot? And I'm just kind of like, I don't know. Like, the things that turn me on about other people that make me, like, want to have sex with them again and again are like feelings they can give me and like pleasure they can bring my body and like the feelings I get from giving them pleasure and making them feel certain ways. And like, I'm, I'm very kinky and like most of my sexual relationships have to involve some kind of like dom sub thing. I don't know if I can be asexual, but also like fucking love having sex and fucking like, 
that just seems not really right. So maybe, uh, maybe this is just like normal to not be attracted to physical things on people. And I'm just bi, or maybe I'm straight, or maybe I'm a lesbian. I've never actually had a in-person textual experience with a woman. So So sometimes I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'm a closeted lesbian, but that really doesn't feel right. Sometimes I feel like this is like a trauma response that I can't like have physical attraction to people. Yeah, I I heard another call where someone was asking about your sexuality and you were like, what kind of porn you watch? Well, my favorite kind of porn is audio porn because I love listening to people like tell me how they're going to make me feel and stuff. And so it's really more about the feelings and and stuff for me rather than like physical appearance things. So yeah, I just, I really don't know if you think you know what kind of sexuality I am. I'd love to know. I think you have a very clear understanding of your sexuality. And I agree. I don't think, nor do you, I don't think you're asexual. You enjoy sex very much. It's just, you're not attracted to body parts. This is a word for, you know, a foot fetishist or someone who's attracted to collarbones or, you know, some non-normative body part that people are attracted to. It's called partialism. They're attracted to a particular part of someone's body and not a part that most people are attracted to and therefore we don't regard, you know, being into asses or tits as, you know, a kink or partialism. Uh, But in a sense, you are – there's no part of the body that that attracts you, no normative part of the body, no body part that attracts most other people or facial symmetry or anything else that typically attracts people. What you're attracted to, what turns you on is a dynamic and you're able to enjoy that dynamic, that dom-sub dynamic with someone really irrespective of their physical appearance because it's that that drama, that erotic play, that tension that arouses you and you've mostly explored this with men. You've had these dom-sub dynamics with men and it really turns you on. And instead of regarding this as a problem that you're not like other people and each of us in some particular way isn't like other people. We are all in some way freaks. Uh, Unlike other people, it's not about physical appearance. That What draws you to someone is not physical appearance. It's this interpersonal dynamic. It's this power play. That's what arouses you. And maybe you would enjoy it with women since you're not hung up on physical appearance, body types, faces. Maybe these kinds of power plays with women would work for you as well, something you could explore. That's how you would get an answer to that question. Or maybe you are heterosexual, mostly attracted to men, but attracted to this dynamic. Listening to your call kind of reminds me of some people I've met on the kink scene, some guys who are very into bondage who didn't understand themselves as gay at first because they were into the bondage and it was mostly guys that they could get to do these sorts of very elaborate bondage games with them. And they only later came to understand themselves as gay or to identify as gay because most of their sexual interactions were with other men. But it was this dynamic about power and control and that's what turned them on and in a sense – the gender of their partners was irrelevant. But because they mostly played with other guys, they came to identify as gay and partner with males. Uh, Maybe that's what you're about. Maybe it's about availability, that you're a woman, you attract mostly male attention, and you've been able to turn some of that male attention into the kind of erotic power play that works for you, that kicks your pussy into gear, that turns 
you on. Maybe that would work with women too. Maybe not. Again, one way to find out. But rather than regard yourself as broken somehow, think of this as your superpower, that there are lots of people out there who are into dom-sub sex, lots of people out there who are into power play, and you're able to enjoy all of them, any of them that are competent at it, any of them whose uh, ideas about power play or interest in power play uh, are compatible with your own, you can be intimate with. You don't have to filter them first on looks and then on interests. You just have to establish mutual interests and then you're going to have a lot more partners available to you potentially for this kind of play. So stop pathologizing yourself. You just have a different kind of sexuality. Your sexuality is expressed in a different way and that's okay. And you are not broken. In fact, I think you have a gift. You have a superpower. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight, almost 40-year-old calling from Canada with a question. My boyfriend's mom recently asked me if she could give my boyfriend and I a baby blanket. He did not know she was asking me this. And by the way, we don't have a baby, nor am I pregnant. Um, And just some quick background. We've been together for a few years, and I won't bore you for the reasons why, but we have made the decision to not have children ourselves. And so here I am with his mom asking for us to have a baby blanket. Now, um, additional context that's probably important is that these blankets were made by his now deceased grandmother. So there was a series of them that were made and each of the grandkids, because he's not the only child, already have one. But now that I suppose, I don't know what's triggered this, she really wants to give us one. And so where I am right now is I'm trying to figure out how I can respond and say no thank you um, without offending her because I think this is something that's important to her and you know becoming you know turning 40 isn't necessarily something that's been concerning to me but I feel a little bit like this is wildly insensitive like for all she knows we could have been trying and then landed on the decision to not have kids and that sort of you know having a blanket for his unborn non-existent child around could be a little bit triggering or just weird maybe anyways I'm really hoping you can help um he's mortified I don't really know if I want him to handle it or if I should talk to her um, but she did follow up this morning with the text and photos of all the options that I have to choose from. So I kind of feel like there's only so long I can avoid this for. Dan, do you have any suggestions? Just take the stupid blanket. Take the stupid fucking blanket. Put it in a box. Put it in the attic. Put it in a drawer. Put it away. If one of your boyfriend's siblings has more than one child, maybe when it's clear that you're not going to have a child, you can ask them if they'd like to have a second baby blanket made by the child's deceased great-grandmother for their kid. This is not a problem and your not-quite-mother-in-law, your boyfriend's mom, isn't being as insensitive as you seem to think she's being. She's not fucking omniscient. She doesn't know that you've decided not to have children. And she also can't know whether you were trying or not. And the blanket would be painful if you were trying to have kids, which you are not trying to do. So the offer of the blanket didn't pour salt in a hypothetical wound in a wound of yours that does not exist. 
maybe she should have thought that through, but she didn't. And Yahtzee, in the end, it isn't an issue. She didn't salt a wound that doesn't exist on your psyche. And I don't understand why you're making this into such a problem. Take the fucking blanket. If you like the fucking blanket and you're not going to have kids, have a pillowcase made out of it. Have it sewn into a larger bedspread that the two of you can use or offer it to, again, one of your boyfriend siblings who has more than one child. You can also risk being honest with your boyfriend's mom. You're almost 40. She may know that you're not interested in having kids or you may not be able to have kids at this point and is just trying to get this shit out of her fucking house. And if you don't want it, just say no and encourage her to pass it on to one of her other kids who has more than one kid. But I think the kind, respectful, conflict-avoiding thing, peacekeeping thing to do here is just pick one of the goddamn blankets, have her send it to you, put it away, and never think about it again. Your boyfriend's mom is just following through on her mother's desire for these blankets to go to her grandchildren. It's not a pressure campaign for you to have a kid and it's not an insult. And again, it's not salt in a wound that doesn't exist. Just take the fucking blanket. Hey, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old bisexual female on the Gulf Coast. I have a question about kissing. I've kissed a few people, you know, we all have. None of them have ever told me I'm bad at kissing, really, but I feel like I am. My ex, I kissed him, and one of the first things he said was, oh, we can, like, get you better at that. And I don't know if he was just an ass or if I'm really actually bad at kissing. I have since broken up with my ex, and last night I had a date with this guy. I kissed him, and I felt like, God, he's so much a better kisser than me. He said he had a good time when I asked him, but I feel like I could have done more. Um, my main issue is when I kiss, I feel like I don't use enough tongue. That's what my ex told me. He was like, you could use more tongue. You could be like more aggressive. And like, I quote unquote, French kiss, you know, like open mouth kiss. I make out with people. I just feel like, I can't put enough tongue in, like my tongue isn't long enough, I have a really small mouth, and I'm like very happy for the other person to stick their tongue down my throat, that's not an issue at all. I'm worried about reciprocating. So your ex-boyfriend, he said something shitty to you. He criticized how you kiss in a not very constructive way, he didn't give you a lot of actionable feedback, he just said you were bad at it and you've internalized this and now you have a full-blown insecurity about whether or not you're a good kisser and you're worried about a couple of physical limitations, having a short tongue and a small mouth that you can't really do anything about. So someone who wants a great big, enormous Carly Simon Julia Roberts mouth and you know a tongue that can snake all the way down their throat, if that's what they need to feel like they're being kissed well – you're never going to be able to kiss someone like that, most likely. You're not going to be able to do that for a guy. So what you need to do is find guys who like how you kiss, who like shoving their tongue down your throat and don't necessarily want to have your tongue down their throat. You know, to be bad at something sexual, it's really subjective and a lot of it depends on 
that other person's experience. What one person might think is bad sex for someone else might be the best sex that they've ever had. You know, one of the things people complain about is she just laid there. She didn't move. Well, for most people, that's bad sex. For a necrophiliac, that would be amazing sex. So a person's subjective experience of you really does inform whether you're good or bad, not objectively, but good or bad subjectively, good or bad for them. That said, there are some people out there who are bad kissers, who kiss so aggressively they're kind of grinding their teeth or their gums into you, who let their lips go too soft, who don't keep any sort of muscular tension at play in their mouth when they're kissing and it's a little bit like, I don't know, rubbing your lips against a couple of garden slugs or something, you can ask for some constructive feedback. Often mirroring helps. If someone's kissing you in a particular way and you're enjoying how they are kissing you, you should make an effort to kiss them back in that way, taking into account, of course, your physical limitations. If someone's getting their tongue all the way back into your throat because they have a giant tongue and you aren't able to get your tongue as far into their mouth, well, get your tongue into their mouth about as far as you can without worrying about your inability to get it into their mouths as far as they're able to get their tongues into your mouths because your tongue is smaller than theirs. And if you're ever worried that your kissing isn't really satisfying someone or your anything, your blowjob, your cunnilingus, whatever it might be, isn't satisfying someone, Ask them playfully and in a sexy way for feedback. Show me how you like to be kissed. Tell me how you want to be kissed. That doesn't have to be I'm failing at kissing and I want to be picked apart. That can be something sexy and playful. It can be a, a way that you engage with someone. Learn your way around their body starting with learning your way around their mouth. But don't put too much weight on what one person told you. This one boyfriend told you you were bad at it. Maybe he was just an asshole who wanted you to feel insecure and self-conscious. Maybe he was nagging you about kissing to manipulate you sexually and not just around kissing but around other things as well and you're well rid of him. And rather than allowing this to be an insecurity that eats at you all your life, you could just shrug it off and absent a lot of other feedback from other dudes about how bad you are at this or other women about how bad you are at this. I wouldn't put too much stock in what one shitty person, most likely a shitty person, I assume he's your ex for a reason, had to say about how you kiss or anything else. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Adam Sass. He is the author of the new YA thriller, Surrender Your Sons, which was just released to multiple starred literary reviews. Hey, Adam, how are you? I am fantastic, Dan. I am, as they say, a uh, longtime listener. I think I've been doing, uh, I've been uh, listening to this as long as you've been doing the podcast. So this is like a real um, treat and a trip. Oh, well, thank you. I, I follow you on Twitter and I very much enjoy your observations about politics. And I enjoyed following you while you were talking about working on this book, which is not a novel about conversion therapy, which is the practice of trying to turn queer kids into straight kids. But as you've described it, Mission Impossible, but with queer kids. Mystery thriller set in a conversion therapy camp. Tell us about Surrender Your Sons. Yeah, I mean, you could, I couldn't have said it better myself. This is, um, it's an escape thriller. It's basically, um, it's a, it's a prison escape story, but with queer kids, they are all, uh, at a mysterious island conversion therapy camp and they are teaming up together to, uh, escape the island and take down this camp. Now, conversion therapy camps, they are actually a thing. And there are some of them 
on small islands in the Caribbean and in other places. Uh, so you're not making this up, this setting up. I sure am not. No, this is actually um, the setting of this was inspired by a documentary called Kidnapped for Christ, which they aired on Showtime uh, about five years ago. And it was a real place in the Dominican Republic um, that uh, was basically on an island. It's been referred to as a, a, a dumping ground for wealthy evangelical parents. Yeah, if only they dumped wealthy evangelical parents there. But it was wealthy evangelical parents <laughs> dumping their queer kids in this camp. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean that'll be the uh, that'll be the sequel. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> This is, uh, yeah, and unfortunately, it's one of those, like, you know, strange but true um, tra- true events. Conversion therapy can really happen anywhere. Uh, a, a big dramatic camp like this, uh, you know, a facility, some are as bland as uh, strip mall uh, offices. Um, and churches. And something just happen in your own home. Churches yeah, right down churches, the street. You know, most, I think most queer kids who have some experience with conversion therapy weren't kidnapped, as your protagonist Connor is, and hustled onto an airplane and flown out of the country, they were just sent down the street or, or driven to their suburban megachurch by their parents and and coerced or bullied into sitting there listening to someone spout horseshit about who they were, yeah. as often to, to, to great personal and psychological and spiritual harm. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things where um, uh, in researching the book, I've been talking to a lot of survivors and uh, one of them, Garrett Conley, who's uh, well known for writing his memoir, Boy Erased, which I think most people kind of know conversion therapy from recently. Uh, and and that was something that was a big, big part of um, his conversion therapy experience is that it doesn't matter if you're in it for a day or a few weeks or, uh, or whatever. It's something where, um, you know, it, conversion therapy really is 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 kind of lifelong if you are with somebody uh, a parent uh local church pastor friends whoever is trying to get you to forcibly change your uh identity orientation um I, you know and it's one of those things where connor in in my book realizes that you know yes he's been sent to this very wild island but um he realizes that oh his conversion therapy began years ago mm-hmm. uh with his with, with the way his mom has tried to get to use financial puppet strings, um, emotional puppet strings to get him to not be who he is. Let's talk about Connor and what happens to him at the start of the book, because this is something I've talked about a lot, and I've gotten some pushback from sometimes queer activists about this, that I will warn young gay kids, young queer kids, young trans kids, that coming out is not always the solution to your problems. Coming out can be the beginning of a whole new set of problems. And if you're a minor and your, you know, your parents have complete authority over your life, it can cause very dire problems. You know, most three quarters of, of, of I think it's three quarters of a homeless uh, young people or young queer people who are thrown out of their po- houses by their parents when their parents found out they were gay or after they came out to their parents, you know, and sometimes the message young queer kids get from the gay rights movement is, you know, come out, come out wherever you are, and your life is going to be awesome as soon as you come out. That's when your life starts. And we're not there to help pick up the pieces. We don't have the resources or even the access to a lot of kids who come out and face, as Connor does in the book, a kind of disastrous situation with the family after he comes out to them. It's not what he expects, is it? 
Yeah, no, it's not at all. And it's one of those things where it's kind of it's kind of the central crisis of what he's dealing with before the island, before all the, the danger there um, is his core crisis is, is that he's dating a boy who has had the absolute biggest dream coming out process ever. It was never a thing. And his boyfriend is really coming from this place of like, oh, yeah, when you know, when you come out, your life begins and everything's happening. And, and until that point, you're not even alive. You're not even doing anything. So he really pushes Connor out of the closet like way too soon. Um, it, and it sort of starts this chain reaction of really horrific events um, for him because, I mean, as you said, and as, you know, I've, I've listened to you say many times on this podcast, which is it's, you know, there are, we have to become young queers and, you know, adult queers even. It doesn't just stop when you're 18. I mean, hello, we're talking about, you know, kids being on people's, um, their family's health insurance until they're 26. There are financial and social puppet strings on Leverage. queer kids with leverage exactly it's all leverage and really what connor has to learn to do is really and that's kind of why we we talked about mission impossible a little bit at the beginning you have to be like kind of a spy in your own home you're you're a double agent you are figuring out what is the safest way to maneuver your way into do you hide your accounts and lie a little bit to get your college paid for to get your car paid for because um connor gets his at the beginning of the thing, he gets his phone taken away, he gets his Wi-Fi taken away, he gets no access to his car. He is stranded in his home. He has abs- he is absolutely at risk before even there's this kidnapping. I've talked to so many uh, young queer kids, so high school age, sometimes over 18, who are just so guilt-stricken because they are lying to their parents. They're dependent on their parents financially, mm. their parents are paying for college, and their parents have made it clear to them some of them tried to come out once and parents said no and they went back in the closet. Their parents made it clear to them that if they tell them the truth about who they are, they will cut them off. And these kids will call me, write me. They feel guilty that they're lying to their parents. And I always tell them, do not feel guilty that you were telling a lie to your parents under duress that your parents are responsible for you telling that lie. That they're forcing you to, to lie to their faces. That is not on you. That is on them. Take the college education. Come out to them the day after you land your first job is my advice. If yeah. it's as extreme as that. And, and it really is. And this is one of the things I really liked about the book. Uh, I loved about the book was, a, as I've said, a kind of best of times, worst of times for young queer kids. There are young queer kids like Connor's boyfriend who've had, you know, the most amazing gilded uh, coming out. It came out to everything that they, you know, you would hope or expect a family uh, to, to give a queer kid when they come out, their love, their acceptance. And there are kids like Connor who come out and it's into a buzzsaw. I mean, it's one of those things we are in such an interesting time. And that is kind of why I did write the book because Connor is, he's very steeped in, you know, gay culture. He knows who he is. He's not like lying to himself, which is a relief, but um, it's one of those things where he is surrounded by love Simon and glee and marriage equality. And um, you know, even like, you know, we're at the 10 year mark now of it gets better where it's, it's like a, it's like, a, well, you know, things are good and things are, you know, great here, but it kind of like, it's one of those things where like every social movement forward, it does kind of create a shadow pocket area where some kids kind of do end up where, and Connor's big thing he fears is like, well, okay. I, you know, um, all of this is happening. All of these great things are happening to all of these other queer people. Just not to me. What's wrong? with me it's almost like there's a there's a part of it that's worse you know one of the criticisms we got uh, with it gets better was that in some cases the message was passive was wait you know mm-hmm. and we were told that we were you know 
that that was wrong and we should be telling kids to, to, to come out and be activists and, you know, start GSAs and change their families and change their schools and change their communities. And to me, you know, having been privy to so many letters and calls from queer kids all over the country for so long, I knew that that wasn't always the best advice for all queer kids and that in an individual mm -hmm. circumstances, it might be better to wait and to, to be that spy behind enemy lines and to do that yeah. really cold assessment of who your parents are and what the risks are if you come out to them right now. Now, some kids, you know, even some queer adults I've met who are in their late 20s and 30s won't come out to their families because they're overestimating or exaggerating how negative their family's reaction is going to mm -hmm. be. And at some point, it tips into just cowardice, frankly. Uh, but for a lot of young queer kids, particularly under 18, it isn't always the worst advice. Somebody should have told Connor yeah. uh, to look at who his <laughs> mother was uh, and really think about the religious organization or the religious community she'd gotten wrapped up in uh, and maybe wait. Sometimes waiting is the yeah. best advice. Waiting is the best advice. And it's one of those things where, like, I would say, like, you know, in some cases, yeah, cowardice. But in other cases, like, you know, if you're if you're to that age, you've been living in a fear suit for so long. Your, your thinking is, is completely changed, is completely wrapped around. You know, you're not seeing maybe reality to that point. And I think that's a part of what Surrender Your Sons is also about is you can kind of be hunted for so long until your your thinking just starts to get dangerous and and, and unreal. But bit. one of the things um, that's so great about it is sometimes being hunted makes you resourceful. You it, yeah. and if you don't get picked off, you get wily or you have to get wily. Like Connor is strong and Connor is able to lead these other kids or they're all able to support each mm -hmm. other. Um the, the kids that he meets mm -hmm. in this camp, they're survivors. And in the end, they triumph. They, it, it, it's a story of queer victory. And I love Connor and all of these kids so much. But Connor, I think, is, I love him so much because, you know, I, you know I've had some people kind of ask me because it, it, it's one of those things where he arrives and immediately he starts messing stuff up. So, and people were like, were like, oh, I thought he would like kind of, you know, maneuver around it. And I was like, he is such a self-possessed, mouthy kid. And then this camp was con constructed as such a house of cards. It's so, you see how fragile the entire ecosystem they've created there is. All it took was one person coming in there asking questions for the whole thing to just immediately crumble. So real quickly before we go, um, you're working with an organization called Born Perfect. Uh, they fight yes. to, to, to pass laws in states and, and cities banning conversion therapy. And that is an increasingly successful mm -hmm. movement. Tell us quickly before we go about Born Perfect and what you're doing with them. Born Perfect is, uh, they're the leading campaign to end conversion therapy. And uh, they are, uh, basically, if you, if you see in the news, anytime they say, uh, we're, we're banning conversion therapy in this state or this city or this city council, odds are good that they are behind the legislation that made that happen. So what there is, so there are a network of survivors um, and, uh, you know, lawyers, attorneys. And so it's just a really wonderful network. So what we're doing with them is Surrender Your Sons is, is partnering with Born Perfect. Um, we're going to be, uh, we're on their site right now as a potential uh, other resource. And then um, November 15th through the 21st, there's an opportunity for Surrender Your Sons readers to help give back and help fight conversion therapy. We are going to be donating 20% of proceeds of our sales to Born Perfect. If you go and shop at my publisher's website, fluxnow.com. So for that week, it's going to be a nice little pre 
how, you know, if, if you've already bought the book and loved it and you want to get it for someone you think we could really use this, a school library, a youth center, or even just yourself, um, or if you just want to help donate, uh, you know, you could pick up this book uh, between November 15th and 21st uh, and help fight conversion therapy because they are, they are tirelessly uh, doing this work out there. Adam Sass, his new book is Surrender Your Sons. He's also the co-host of the Buffy podcast, Slayer Fest 98. And you've got a brand new podcast coming up, Horror is So Queer. When does that launch? Uh, that will launch pretty close to Halloween. So um, whenever this comes out, it might already be out, but it's going to be an, a limited run, eight episode series where you break down queer themes and characters across horror films. The Adam Sass on Twitter, follow him and buy and read his terrific and really thrilling uh, and exciting. I, I was really wrapped up in it and I enjoyed it so much. His terrific new book, Surrender Your Sons. Thank you, Adam Sass, for coming on. Dan, thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I am out on my morning walk debating a very difficult decision. And that is my one of my best friends is getting married on the beach on the eastern seaboard. And he is having... 30 people or so stay in a beach house from all different directions in the country. One from Seattle. Apparently this person from Seattle has been quarantined and been very careful, but also many other guests whom I don't know. Now his fiance is sort of a conservative and her friends, I assume are too, might not be very safe in their activities out in the world these days. I do not want to miss this wedding. I love my friend. I want to be there and witness it. And it sounds like a great time. And I need you to talk me out of it, I think. <laughs> uh, I'm just struggling with the decision to say no. Uh, could you offer any advice? I, I, other details I could provide are that there is the opportunity for me to sleep in my car and not sleep in the, in the uh, beach house. I can uh, do that and take my meals outside. I think much of the activities are going to be outside anyway. It's going to be like a three or four day event where people are breathing the same air in a beach house, <laughs> but also having fun outside on the beach. And maybe I can just do that part. So I'm struggling with this decision and would love your input on that. So uh, one wedding in Maine earlier this year led to 170 COVID-19 infections and seven deaths, and not all of the dead people were guests at the wedding. They were family members and friends of idiots who attended this super spreader event wedding. There was a wedding in Calgary that led to 49 infections, and um, a gay dude in Texas, a conservative gay dude who believed that the pandemic was a hoax, obeyed the restrictions, didn't see friends or family for months and months and months, and then decided he'd had enough and they had to live their lives. So he invited his parents and his boyfriend's parents over and they spent the weekend at their place and they decided that they would hug and hang out and just be normal packed into this house together. And all six of them left that get together with COVID and now two family members of his who weren't at the event are dead. So yeah, I don't think you should go to this fucking wedding. 30 people from all over the country pouring into a beach house as COVID-19 infections are roaring out of control, spiking all over the country. That is a terrible idea. And if there are a bunch of conservative assholes gathering in this beach house 
you will likely be mocked for wearing a mask, mocked for sleeping in your car, mocked for taking your meals outside. And even if you do all those things, you may still wind up being exposed to the virus. And will you be able to hold out against that kind of mockery from these idiots who are holding a wedding in a house at this moment when infection rates are skyrocketing everywhere because conservative idiots don't think it's real. It's a scam and it's a hoax until it happens to them. And I really despair that it's literally going to have to happen to each and every conservative in denial about this virus before they believe it's real. It happened to the fucking president and he is still in denial about this virus. Ugh. Yeah, you have my permission not to go to this fucking wedding. Send a broken goddamn toaster. You say this guy is one of your best friends or your very best friend and yet he is putting you in this position where you have to choose between your loyalty to him, your desire to be there for him at this wedding and your health potentially, your life potentially, the health and lives of your friends and family that you will get back together with maybe or the people in your pods back where you live after you leave this ill-advised, idiotic wedding. Do not go. Zoom in if you must. Just don't masturbate on Zoom like Jeffrey Tupin did at that New Yorker meeting that got him into all that trouble. Zoom in if you must. Be present. But I would encourage you to revisit your connection to this person, your affection for this person who would so selfishly place you and everyone – that you know that you're in contact with at risk at this moment and place all the rest of their friends, his friends and his fiance's friends at risk at this moment by scheduling a wedding. When we have seen again and again and again that these kinds of gatherings, sweet 16 parties that led to COVID-19 infection outbreaks, weddings that led to COVID-19 infection outbreaks, family reunions that led to COVID-19 outbreaks, are really ill-advised. And if you have friends or family who are stupid enough to throw an event like this at a time like this, you have to be smart enough and strong enough to say no and not go. Hi, Dan Nance in the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I know you love wedding questions, so I was hoping to get your advice on my mother-in-law's wedding. She is a very sweet woman, but she seems to not be taking COVID seriously. Her definition of social distancing is very laid back and seems highly risky. She has gone on several vacations since March involving flying and gathering with people from several different households. She got engaged pre-COVID, but tonight she just sprung on us that she is planning on getting married next summer. She is planning a wedding with roughly 30 to 40 people attending from all over the country. She wants my husband to walk her down the aisle and have we do a reading at the Reading. We live a nine-hour drive away. She knows we are taking COVID very seriously. My husband has a weakened immune system, and we have not been to a grocery store since mid-March. Luckily, we live in a big city that allows us to get our groceries delivered. We have only visited one set of friends since the lockdown began. We saw them for roughly 45 minutes outside with masks over six feet away. 
this wedding feels like an unfair request, given how careful we are about COVID and my husband's health. Given the predictions about this not getting under control until hopefully late 2021, I'm deeply concerned. I don't see a version where COVID COVID numbers get low enough for us to safely attend a gathering like this early in the summer. So my question to you is, do we need to drive nine hours or fly to attend this wedding because it is his mother? Or is it acceptable for us to refuse to attend? Do we tell her this now or do we wait until the wedding gets closer when we know more about how we are doing as a country about COVID? I definitely trust your opinion with love some advice. We love her, but we aren't sure what to do. Looks like it's going to be a wedding-heavy show. Uh, unlike the previous caller, where the wedding is coming right up next couple of weeks, this is next June. We're talking six, seven, eight months away. So I would, if I were you, if I were in your shoes, I would give your husband's mother-in-law a tentative yes and a qualified yes. Yes, we will come to the wedding. We will get in the car and drive nine hours and come to your wedding He'll walk you down the aisle. I'll do a reading. If there is a vaccine, an effective vaccine widely available by then, if COVID-19 infection rates are coming down and it would be safe for us to do so, if not, we will not be able to attend your wedding. So, mom, so mother-in-law, if it is really very important to you that we be at your wedding, you might have to postpone it. If there isn't a vaccine by then, if COVID-19 infection rates aren't low enough by then for us to safely travel. And I would tell her that the yes is not just tentative and qualified because you have to take your husband's health into consideration. It's tentative and qualified because you don't want to put her in the position of having to live with the guilt of killing her immunocompromised son by him showing up at a wedding and contracting COVID-19 after being so careful at that point for more than a year because he felt obligated to, because he felt manipulated, emotionally manipulated into showing up for his mother despite his best judgment. So you can have it both ways with this conflict, with this question. You can have it both ways. You can give your mother-in-law, the yes she wants to hear, and you can qualify it. You can give yourselves at the same time the out that you might need. Yes, we're coming if vaccine, if infection rates are low enough for us to come and be at your wedding safely. If not, yeah, mom, you might want to make sure those deposits on caterers, on the venue, on flowers are refundable. Because odds are, by next June, at the rate we're going, it won't be safe for us to travel to your wedding, that it won't be safe for you to have. Hey, Dan. This is a gay male on the East Coast. I have a, a question for you. My partner and I are engaged, and uh, we're looking to get married sometime next year. The, the problem and the dilemma that I'm struggling with is, he uh, has parents that are conservative. I mean, they were, you know, right-wing Trump voters, and for his whole life, he feels like they've never completely accepted him. And uh, when 
they heard about our marriage. They seemed happy, but at the same time, it was almost a superficial happiness. And recently he sent them an article about how the Supreme Court could challenge marriage equality. And they responded by um, basically saying that they believe that marriage is a right between a man and a woman. And if we want to, we should just get domestic partnership. So, and, you know, not surprisingly, he, he was upset and he uninvited his parents and, uh, and, and kind of said, you know, if you believe in this, then I really don't want to have you at the wedding. I'm worried about it because I think that, you know, during the wedding, it might be uncomfortable for him or asking him the whole time where his parents are rather than him focusing on enjoying the wedding. And I want to support him and make sure, you know, he does what's, what's right for him. And uh, I don't know if there's a different way to approach this, if there's a happy medium or any way to kind of solve this issue. I would also encourage you to make sure whatever deposits you're putting down for venues or caterers or florists or DJs are fully refundable if you're scheduling your wedding for sometime next year. It might be better to schedule that wedding for sometime in 2022 rather than 2021 just to be on the safe side. All right, what do you do about whenever the wedding happens? What do you do about your boyfriend's parents? Well, you know, it might be awkward if they're there scowling and it might be sad for your boyfriend if they're not there and they're missed. But if what you're worried about, a bunch of friends asking or other family members asking your now boyfriend, now fiance, then husband after the ceremony where his parents are, well, that's – something you can easily take care of in advance. You can even enlist some friends to run interference for you just to casually spread the word that your parents weren't able to be there. They're, they're not there for reasons they don't even have to go into and you'd rather not be asked about it and you would appreciate it. You know, your friends can relay this for you. You would appreciate it if people could just be sensitive to the fact that your parents aren't there and you don't want to spend the entire day answering questions about why his parents aren't there. And as for why his parents aren't there, I think your boyfriend has known his parents longer than you've known his parents. And if he doesn't want them at his wedding, you're going to have to respect that. The only thing I would say to your fiancé, if he were my fiancé, is that sometimes people have epiphanies at weddings. Sometimes family members who weren't very supportive of the match, whether it's a same-sex marriage, whether it's you know, an interracial marriage, whatever else it might be that some small-minded, bigoted people will latch onto and disapprove of, putting them in a room full of other people who fully love, support, and embrace this couple can push them in the direction of fully supporting, loving, and embracing this couple. Now, you don't want your wedding to be all about your boyfriend's shitty parents learning to be less shitty people. It's not for or about them. But if them being there and not being fully on board isn't something that's going to ruin the day for you or ruin the day for your fiancé, you might want to think about inviting them, re-extending that invitation because you never know what might happen at the wedding. But it seems clear, you know, obviously, it's not okay with your fiancé, at least not now, for his parents to be at the wedding if they're not fully on board, if they don't fully embrace him. And you and the two of you together. And finally, one last additional perk to the wedding being 
Sometime in 2022, a long engagement. <laughs> it's a great engagement. I've always been in favor of very long engagements. Have a nice long engagement, you two, is that it gives his parents more time to come around in advance of the wedding, more time to come around, fully embrace you two now that they know that there are going to be consequences for them if they don't. And who knows? Maybe by spring of 2022, your boyfriend, your fiance, your future husband will be able to extend an invitation to his parents that he feels good about. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 30-year-old bi, cisgendered man who's married to a woman and living on the East Coast. I am looking for some vice and a bit of a kick in the ass regarding coming out as bi to my family while in an opposite-sex, monogamous relationship. I'm out to our friends, but not to my family, and only to one member of my wife's family. My family is actually very much on the liberal side. Besides maybe one person, I don't think anyone would have any issues with it. I mostly haven't told them because it hasn't really been relevant. I realized my sexuality near the end of college and had a few random hookups with dudes post-college, but soon started dating my now wife and haven't had a relationship with a man or anything. I've been thinking about coming out as bi to my family for a while now, just to be fully open and honest about who I am, as well as being inspired by your talking about bi invisibility and some guilt I have for being the exact person who perpetuates that. I guess what I'm looking for from you is some guidance on how to go about coming out, particularly during a pandemic. I have a big family, there obviously aren't any large family gatherings coming up, and I just really don't want to have a bunch of phone conversations with family about how I suck some dicks after college. I've thought before about maybe just sending an email out to everyone, letting them know, explaining a little bit about why I wanted to come out, and telling them to feel free to share the the info with anyone not on the email. Though that obviously brings up some anxiety about people talking about me behind my back, slash offending some closer family members by not telling them directly. So Dan, let me know what you think. Do you agree that I should tell my family? And if so, do you have any advice on how to go about it? You know, if we weren't currently in the midst of a pandemic that made family gatherings not possible for people who have smart and responsible families, it would be easy to drop this into a conversation. It would be easy to roll this out in a casual way. You're at a family gathering and the subject of sexual orientation comes up as it sometimes does because LGBT stuff is in the news a lot, constantly, even still, always will be. And you could at that moment mention, clarify. You could just offer, particularly if somebody, you know, assumed you were straight, like jokingly said, you know, straight guy to straight guy or said something to you that sort of centered your presumed heterosexuality. You could at that moment clear your throat and go, actually, you know, I'm bisexual and then rely on word of mouth at that family gathering for the news to spread. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate way for someone to come out, for the coming out to be more of a clarification, letting somebody know that they made an incorrect assumption about you and uh, asserting your true identity or actual sexual orientation in that moment. But when it comes to bisexuality, I do think it's important for People who've been presumed to be straight or gay, you know, a bisexual person who's in an opposite sex relationship or a same sex relationship to be proactively out about being bi because, because bi invisibility really has consequences. People who are bisexual have higher rates of depression and anxiety. They're at higher risk of suicide than gay or lesbian people. And it's often the case that bisexual people have partners, have husbands or wives 
that don't know they're bisexual or didn't know that they were bisexual because perhaps the bisexual person didn't realize they were bisexual or never thought they were going to come out about being bisexual and then got found out or came out after entering into this marriage and they are stuck with a partner who disapproves of their bisexuality, who judges and shames them for it. And that is tied particularly by men to the worst mental and physical health outcomes, that disapproving, shaming, scolding partner. So uh, I do think sometimes when a bi person comes out, a person has been assumed to be – particularly a person has been assumed to be straight by family members, when they come out for that point to be made and to be made clearly, you know, bisexual people because of bisexual erasure – and feeling not at home in the gay community and not at home in the straight community and suspect in both places often really suffer. And so it's important for bisexual people like me who are in same-sex relationships to resist that assumption, to resist being presumed to be straight. And not just because that can negatively impact my mental health because I want other people in my family who might be bi-closeted to know that it's safe for them to come out too because I have come out now and everyone has been wonderful and welcoming and accepting, fingers crossed. And so anybody else who's in my position now or the position I was in before I came out now knows that in this family, it's safe to come out. That's the ripple effect that one person coming out in a family often has. It is rare for a large extended family to just have one queer person in it. If you are closeted and queer and no one else in your family is out, odds are good that if you come out, you will be doing a solid for somebody else in your family, in your extended family, who is queer and closeted themselves. So because you can't do it casually and you couldn't do it formally even at a family gathering, you could drop it in casually at a family gathering or you could clear your throat and sit everybody down at a family gathering and let them know, that leaves email or a Facebook status update. And I think you should do it. I don't think you should wait another six months or a year to be fully out to your family because there might be someone else in your family who is closeted and suffering right now. And you feeling confident enough to come out and you showing them that you were met with nothing but love and acceptance when you came out will give them the courage to come out. All right. Before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Megan Martino tweets, what did I do for the 45 minutes? I was waiting in line to vote in Payne County, Oklahoma. Binge listened to the hashtag Savage Lovecast. Dan has a way of giving me hope that this election won't be a disappointment. Hashtag Biden Harris. 2020. Thank you, Megan, for waiting in line. And I hope this election isn't a disappointment for our side. I hope it is a crushing disappointment for Trump's side. And finally, Juliet Winks tweets, yes, this lady has masturbated at work more than once, but never on Zoom. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Masturbating at work. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag not just men. We appreciate everyone who takes the time to post about the show to their social media accounts, help spread the word. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the show, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this is for the woman in the recent episode who was into choking during sex, but was sort of apprehensive about it. Uh, you sort of keyed in on the breath play as the central focal point of choking. But I think the caller might have mentioned that at least part of the appeal for her was the dom-sub aspect of choking or, or the sort of dom dominant nature of it. 
I've had some partners who were into choking and I was super uncomfortable with it. But after talking with them about it and realizing that part of the appeal was the rough sex nature of it, we tried to combine, you know, simply having my hands on their neck with minimal or no pressure uh, with another move that did have pressure that was not on the neck. So like maybe going in to kiss her with my hand gently on her neck, but then pulling her hair from the other side or my hand on her neck, but grabbing her shoulder or hair more aggressively when I'm on top or something like that. So maybe your caller can see if some of the other rough stuff at the same time can help with, you know, scratching the choking dom sub itch. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the guy who twice put an age under 30 in the dating app when his girlfriend asked him not to. I couldn't help but draw some personal parallels. And I've noticed recently, every time I'm in a public place and someone is not wearing a mask where they are required to, 100% of the time, in my experience, it is a man. And there is something about men who cannot handle being told what to do. The fact that this guy went in the second time and put 29 instead of 30, like that is the actions of a child. That is a tantrum that you are throwing saying, you can't tell me what to do. And the advice I have for this guy is grow up. And if you're not already in therapy, I recommend you get therapy and talk through what it is inside of you that made you so blatantly disregard her very fair request. And I would get that therapy before you have any other relationships, especially an open one. Hi, Dan. This is a reply um, to episode 731 and the 53-year-old straight dude um, I was really surprised that your therapist focused on your ex's impulsive rage and not the fact that you are so obsessed with the difference between a 29-year-old and a 30-year-old woman that you would throw your relationship away not once, but twice. I certainly hope that is not, uh, to use your words, typical dude fashion. This disdain for women over 30 seems like much more of a pathological thing to explore between the two of you, and I'm shocked that your therapist neglected to note it for you. So I'm here to point it out, and also, as a woman in her 30s, to invite you to go fuck yourself. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question or comment for a future show? There are two, two ways to get them to us. Call us at 206-302-2064. That's 206-302-2064. Or use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Nancy, the tech-savvy at-risk youth, and I are hosting another Savage Love live stream on December 12th. I'll be answering as many of your burning questions as I can, all live from my living room. You can email me your questions ahead of time at livestream at savagelovecast.com or just head to the party and ask when you get there. And if you just want to watch, that's okay too. Either way, grab your tickets at savagelovecast.com slash events. And the next volume of Hump's Greatest Hits starts streaming on November 6th. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to watch a collection of some of our favorite porn shorts from the last 15 years of Hump. And speaking of Hump, the 16th annual Hump Film Festival is coming right up, and the deadline to enter your dirty short film is right around the corner. December 4th is the submission deadline for next year's Hump. Find out how to send yours in and get a chance at fame, glory, and large cash prizes by heading over to humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Adam Sass on Twitter at the Adam Sass. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for voting for Biden and Harris. Thank you for masking up. Please take care and we will see you on the other side.